A first full staging of a new work, of course, is always a very special moment in the life of any opera house. And I think a new work by John Adams is even more to be cherished. He is, of course, one of the most accomplished of contemporary composers working in music theatre today. From Nixon in China onwards, he's created music dramas that insist that it's possible and indeed essential to stage the modern world and the issues within that world that touch all our lives. China and America struggling for reconciliation in Nixon, the moral confusions around the creation and use of nuclear weapons in Dr. Atomic, the contemporary meaning perhaps of the nativity in El Nino, Israel and Palestine in Klinghoffer, and now the gospel according to the other Mary. The other Mary is, of course, Mary Magdalene. But in this version of her gospel, she and her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus, raised from the dead by Jesus, seem to exist in a present tense as well as belonging clearly to Christian history. They're running a refuge for the poor that might be in Galilee and it might also be simultaneously in New York City or in any other large city within the world. The text for this evening's performance is by the director, Peter Sellers, and in it he mixes what we know from the New Testament with writings with four women writers, principally, who fought for social justice in their own lives. The Catholic activist Dorothy Day, Rosario Castellanos, June Jordan, and the poet Louise Erdrich. Well, we're joined tonight by a trio of guests to raise the curtain on John Adams' The Gospel According to the Other Mary. Mari Hipkin is with us, member of the music staff here at English National Opera, who's also the cover conductor for this production. And with him, the mezzo-soprano Sarah Pring, who's covering the role of Mary Magdalene. And they're going to perform two pieces of music from the uh, music drama. But our first guest, and how lucky we are, is the director of the Gospel According to the Other Mary and its librettist, and uh, a man with an international career in the theatre. It is, of course, Peter Sellers. Will you please welcome Peter Sellers? Peter, how did all this start? How did the Gospel according to the other Mary begin? What were the kind of moments where it started? Well, we had made El Nino uh, in the year 2000. Everybody was in a millennial craze, creating futuristic domes and whatever. And John Adams was the only person, I think, who said, wait a minute, was, is it the 2000th anniversary of? Let's make a piece about the birth of Jesus. So El Nino is that. And then, three years ago, John just shocked me one day by saying, Peter, it's time to do a passion. And I said, no, 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 John, we don't have to do that. And I was actually in the middle of working with Simon Rattle and the Berlin Philharmonic on the Bach, St. Matthew Passion, and St. John Passion. So I was up to my eyeballs in passions. And, but I did know the story. <laughs> And so I thought, okay, let's have another go. And of course, one of the great things about the passion story is it doesn't, you know, you don't run out of ways to treat it, understand it, or think about it. And the more you think about it, and the more you look at it, it's infinite in every direction. And I thought, okay, Bach has handled certain things. What things that did Bach not treat? we could perhaps treat those elements of the story and find a different path uh, than, than Bach found. So it's, a, it, it, it's come through a year where I've literally made four passions. And uh, they're all really interesting. 
not only is it a good story, and is it incredible to follow Bach, but it's incredible to follow Jesus. And it's incredible to follow the women who followed him with courage, with vision, with incredible sense of love. And that is the heart of drama. Was it your idea that the, the, the present and the, the past, in a sense, should overlap and indeed become often indistinguishable? Well, that's going on next door in the Sainsbury uh, wing. You know, I mean, that's Rembrandt had that idea first, is that the crucifixion isn't happening long ago. It's happening at the moment with Dutch burghers working their fields. And the crucifix is right over there. And they're crucifying Jesus while there's a market going on and a million other things. I think always spiritual things are different from a Jane Austen novel. You know, the Jane Austen novel needs the detail of that particular moment in time to make sense. Whereas Christ's sacrifice means something different in every place, in every human life in every moment of our lives, when in fact it means different things to us across our lives. And so it's always something that you're coming to some new understanding of or some new insight. One of the things I'm struck about, when you look at the Gospels, um, we know more about some of the women, including Martha and Mary um, and others, than we know about at least three of the disciples. <laughs> yes. And, and yet, we, yet we've written these women, in a sense, out of the great grand narrative that is part of this. <laughs> Chris, that's beautiful. You know, I have to say, uh, these women, of course, loom large. Uh, and, and there's so much devotional work that is paintings and, and statuary and chapels and shrines to Mary Magdalene. And, and it's a very powerful figure because which of us has not made every mistake imaginable in our lives and feel that we'd be allowed to have another chance. And not only that we'd be allowed to have another chance, but strangely, it's the making of mistakes, making of large mistakes, getting things completely wrong that is very, draws you much closer to God. <laughs> that strange fact that Jesus came to be with the most difficult people and that some weird extremity of being alcoholic, a drug addict, and a complete failure prepares you for the next step into total spiritual surrender. And so it's, in fact, the people who have made terrible mistakes who are poised for a miracle, poised for a turnaround, because they've had to give up on all the things that most of us are still depending on and think carry us through a day. And these people have given up on all of that. And the only thing that's going to get them through the day is leaning on some spiritual truth because everything else has abandoned them and they've abandoned it. So that end of the line, of course, is the subject of opera. Opera treats people's lives in extremis. You make an opera, an opera aria is when it's no longer enough to just say something. You have to reach some other level of emotional abandon and some place where a crisis turns into a moment of vision, redemption, and your life changes. 
Peter, were the four women that I've mentioned, um, Dorothy Day, Rosario Castellanos, June Jordan and Louise Erdrich, women from entirely different areas of, 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 of life and experience, were these women who you had been waiting in some way to, 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 to bring, bring to us? June Jordan is the great poet of the civil rights movement and one of the great feminist voices in American history. And uh, we made uh, uh, John's third piece with her. I was looking at the ceiling and then I saw the sky. June died of breast cancer several years ago and we wanted to acknowledge her and put a memorial to her in this piece. Um, Louise Erdrich in America is very well known. She's won the National Book Award. She has almost 25 novels now uh, to her credit. Uh, but when she was younger, she wrote a lot of poetry and we used those early poems. She's a Native American writer of Native American and German uh, 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 roots. And she grew up on an Indian reservation in South Dakota and with this indigenous spirituality and a very intense Catholic overlay. And so all of those things are at play in her work. And one of the things that's so moving about um, the presence of indigenous spirituality is so many things that for us can be complex theological conundrums like the resurrection, do you believe in it? Well, of course, for her, it's the frogs are back. Resurrection is built into the world and it's not just some metaphysical concept it's that the frogs are climbing back out of the mud. It's spring, and the frogs have returned. And so, so many of the images of Louise Erdrich's uh, spirituality are deeply in the body and deeply in the natural world, which is so beautiful. Uh, then I would emphasize Dorothy Day, who, who you mentioned. She founded the Catholic Worker Movement. She was an activist in the early 20th century in Chicago, in New York. She was an early lover of Eugene O'Neill's in the bohemian life of the Greenwich Village. Uh, and she was arrested the first time when she was 17 for participating in uh, strikes, trying to, workers trying to get their rights. She realized that the communist worker was not the solution. <laughs> And the sense of you're going to improve the world just by getting people a better paycheck was not enough. Was that you have to take care of the material needs, but also their whole being. And so she challenged the communist worker newspaper by founding her own newspaper and movement, The Catholic Worker. In the process, calling the Pope's attention to the church belongs in solidarity with the poorest people in the world. And she was one of the most courageous uh, figures, not only an anti-nuclear activist and so on, she refused to pay taxes during World War II because she said the Bible says thou shalt not kill. And she went to jail for that. She's one of those determined saints of the 20th century. The Catholic worker was founded in the early 30s by Dorothy and a group of people in the middle of the depression. And those were the first soup kitchens and bread lines on the Bowery in downtown New York, and those famous images that we all have from those years. Students coming out of university, you know, highly qualified, deeply idealistic people, there were no jobs, and they all flocked to join Dorothy and the Catholic Worker. They opened up Catholic Worker houses of hospitality all over America, and to this, you know, tonight, the Catholic Worker in, on Skid Row in Los Angeles will serve 200 meals to homeless people, uh, staffed still by students, and people who devoted their lives to Thanksgiving every single day 
this Thanksgiving tonight at the Catholic Worker in Los Angeles is a particularly special occasion. And um, so we wanted to honor Dorothy, but particularly at this moment where governments everywhere are now venting themselves and attacking the poor and blaming, we have this moment of blaming poor people for being poor. And, and of course, John and I thought this was a good moment to just check out the Gospels again and see what they say about that. And uh, finally, the, the, uh, the, the last woman I should mention. Um, have I done? No, uh, Rosario Castellanos. Oh, Rosario. Uh, just to say, she's, we, we have her poetry a lot in El Nino. She is a visionary poet of the mid-century Mexican woman who absolutely took spirituality so deep into her daily life. Uh, and these poems, again, she spent her time with indigenous, working in Mexican indigenous villages. The indigenous spirituality is present. And her creation, the, the, the poetry is so ravishingly beautiful. On that day of creation, it moves through her skin. It's air, it's sunlight. You know, it's not just suffering. And this, uh, this deep, deep exaltation, uh, of course, is something that John Adams sets musically in the most thrilling possible way. Peter, thank you. We'll talk a little bit about the production. Well, stay with us, if you will. But thank you very much. I'll indeed. hang in. OK, great. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined now by Sarah Pring, the mezzo-soprano who's covering the role of Mary Magdalene in this production, and by Murray Hipkin, a senior member of the music staff here at English National Opera and who is the cover conductor for this production. Sarah, who is the Mary Magdalene that you're going to be singing? Who is she, do you think? Oh, discuss. Well, in this, in this uh, version, I think she is uh, damaged. She is vulnerable. She has been possibly a drug addict. She has been possibly abused. Um, she has, there is reference to her attempting suicide. She is she's struggling with all kinds of demons and that's the, the Mary Magdalene we meet at the beginning of the show. She then has this huge journey. I always think def defined by the word hope. That's what I feel about it. That is that all the way through she's trying to find ways through prayer, through belief, to fill all the gaps, the holes, the bits of her that aren't functioning, if that makes sense. She's, de she's deeply troubled spiritually. I mean, there's that extraordinary passage in the opera when she says that she can't pray kneeling. She can only pray if she walks and keeps on walking. And I think all of us must sense what that actually means. And for her, it's this sort of sense of uncertainty about what her, her own spiritual di future dimension might be. Well, and also, she doesn't know her capacity. She doesn't... You know, she, she doesn't think well of herself. She doesn't think of herself as a good human being. And, of course, when we, when we don't think of ourselves in a good way, we don't know what we're capable of. So we question all the time, don't we? Um, oh, will I be able to manage this? Will I improve myself as a person? Um, you know, I'll, I'll give it a try. You feel a bit more confident, then you lose ground again. I mean, yes, I think it's a very familiar process to all of us. And what does she see in Jesus? What does she find within him? Well, she finds a way to hope. She finds a way to see herself as a better person by what he does, what he carries, what he suffers, what he 
shows through the resurrection of Lazarus and then obviously uh, further things. But he sh I think he is her means of hope. That's what I feel. And, and, and what about her sister Martha, who is indeed wonderfully bustling and efficient as we expect her from the Gospels, you know, constantly, no doubt, keeping a good large tureen of soup bubbling along and baking bread while, 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 while Mary is busy doing other things? Well, the, the problem for... Well, not the problem for Martha. Martha is very practical. She sees, she sees her Christianity as physically helping. You were talking about the soup kitchens. Physically helping by feeding, clothing, blankets, you know, whatever it is she can do. Whereas Mary's trying to find something deeper. She's trying to get underground. Do you understand? She's kind of digging where she sees Martha as very much uh, managing the, the surface, I think. You're going to disagree with me. Aren't you? Yeah, this is so brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> as you've been working on the score, what have emerged for you as as the vocal challenge, the technical challenges of this role. Oh, well, how long have you got? Uh, the, the, the thing is, um, a couple of years ago, I was in Satyagraha here. I don't know if anybody came to see it. I was Mrs. Alexander and so Philip Glass, you think, that's marvellous. Um, I've done modern music. But when I was offered to cover this main role and when I started to look at it, I started to think, well, the range is enormous. He's using the lower part of a voice in the way I've never, ever used in my whole life and probably will never again. Um, that the way he uses the voice to express is different. Every interval is different. The rhythm of every bar is different. It's an extraordinary challenge, intellectually, emotionally, in every other way. Well, we're going to put you to that challenge now. What are you going to sing for us first? Oh, well, <laughs> as I run out. I'm going to sing something from Act One, which is, uh, we refer to as the prayer. And it's Mary struggling for the first time. This is the first time we see her trying to come to terms with the ability to pray, to think, to question. I think that's, does that? Check it out. Check it out. <laughs> Thank you very much.
Sarah, thank you very much. Murray, too. Murray, you're in a remarkable position because I realise, well, you told me, that you've worked on every single one of the Adams works that have been here on the stage at English National Opera. Um, over, the, over the period, have you come to any kind of sort of overall arching conclusion about what this extraordinary <laughs> man is about? Or is that a terribly unfair question to ask you? Well, it wasn't on my list of questions. <laughs> so I suppose well, in, I that, always in, you. in that sense, it's unfair. Um, no, I mean, he, one, one of the things I feel about John is it's completely unpredictable. And every time I work on a new piece, and I've, I've just done these four, I've done some of them several times, but um, it, they always take me off balance. I never quite know what, what's, what's coming our way. And um, I think what makes this one so extraordinary is... Um, I, I've, I've made a few notes here, and I wrote tapestry. That was the very first word I came up with. I just feel it, 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 there's a kind of such a strong sensual element to it. I can't describe it in terms of what it sounds like. I can describe it in terms of what it looks like and what it smells like. I suppose that's, that's a really odd answer coming from a musician, but, but that, that's my response to his music. And I feel that you know, when we're talking about the raw sewage in Act 2, which is about, sorry, end of Act 1, a little delight you have to look forward to, you can smell it in his music. And... Peter's mentioned the frogs. You can kind of see all that. There's just the most extraordinary ability to, to paint the scene in the music. And I think that's the one thing that, that always gets me with his work. And, and do you think it is decisively different from, from pieces that have come before it? Well, I think you're, any, anyone who's familiar with um, the, the pieces we've done here, for example, Nixon, Dr. Atomic, and Death of Klinghoffer, will find something in this piece that they will recognise and will make them feel sort of... that they, they sort of know where they are. I mean, all the... All the um, I, I was, I was going to try and get through today without saying the word minimal, minimalism. I mean, because people still talk about John as a minimalist composer, and, I mean, what's wonderful about it is that those techniques, certainly, you'll find them if you look carefully. But... Nixon, which had a lot more of that motor-driven, um, ostinato-driven uh, music. There are certainly sections in this piece that, that draw on that. And then the, the sort of more lyrical work, like uh, Klinghoffer, you'll, you'll recognise some, some of that as well. But I haven't got... I mean, I've got to go and watch this again before I... Can I come back next week and answer that question again? Is that we'll, right? We'll all return. But, but the one thing... Uh, the, the, in Nixon, sometimes as a musician or a conductor or singer, you need a slide rule to kind of do all the, the joins. In this one, um, there are a few of those bar nines that say, you know, a, a double-dotted quintuplet sec um, semiquaver equals a minimum in the next bar. But I asked Joanna, the conductor, about, oh, she, I, just, she, I just go faster. She said... <laughs> <laughs> Peter's talked about, about how this grew out of... Bach's passions, how he was, you know, doing several passions and John, he talked about it. Can you hear, as it were, not obviously quotation, but can you hear that sense of Bach's passions in the piece? Yes, and every, every so often, I mean, I don't, I don't know for sure, and Peter may, may have an answer to this, I, uh, I don't know for sure whether there are any quotations in it, but there are certain, every so often something kind of goes past, you think, oh, that smelt like Bach. And it really is, I keep using this image of smelling, but that's what it is for me. Um, there are a few places, and there, there's a brass chorale towards the end, which I'm in orchestra described as the Bruckner moment, but for me it's very much about Bach. Um, the way that uh, John uses the, the, the three countertenors as the evangelist figure, if you like, and of course the fact that so much of their text is familiar, um, particularly to anyone who's, who's uh, listened to the Bach Passions in English translation. Um, 
And as far as the orchestration, there's, there's another interesting thing that, that I think sort of just takes me, takes me into that world occasionally. Um, it's a fairly standard classical orchestra, triple woodwind, um, brass strings, um, some exotic percussion, some lovely cowbells. Um, no cows attached, sadly. I think they'd have had a job fitting them in there. But, and some tuned gongs and very, very large... Um, well, it's supposed to be a Japanese drum, but it wouldn't fit through the door, so we had to have a Chinese one instead, and a djembe. But the uh, piano and bass guitar, but the, uh, the one surprise instrument is the um, cymbalum, which is a, a concert instrument. It's a Hungarian dulcimer, but um, it is actually a concert instrument rather than a folk instrument. Um, and that serves a dual purpose, because it takes us into this exotic place, and it, it helps navigate us through when we're going in and out of the the two layers of the story, the sort of more contemporary and, and back into the biblical uh, story. No, I shouldn't say that. I mean, it's not really, it's not that they're separated, but, um, but that the symbolism tends to help, help us a little bit. But it's also, you suddenly think, oh, there's a harpsichord playing a bit of, a bit of bark. So there are all these little, little kind of clues everywhere. You're going to perform a second piece. So what are you yes. going to do? We're going to do um, Mary's short uh, soliloquy um, after Lazarus has died. Um, it's a text by June Jordan, who um, Peter was talking about earlier, and it's called "In My Own Quietly Explosive Here." I had to check that. Sorry, "In My Own Quietly Explosive Here," where she's grieving the early shock of the death of, of Lazarus. Thank you both very much. You. Stay, with Stay with us. Stay with us. You can look on the screen here, and I'm sure you will have realised that. And we have the images from the production. Um, Peter, a very simple question. How do you set about working here on a secular stage, but creating a work that is, in a sense, a sacred work? Well, I think every human life is sacred, and every 
Well, I, I, from one of my early encounters with a great Navajo activist, we were trying to decide what sacred space is, and he said, if you can find a space that's not sacred, you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically, of course, you have to treat everything in your life and in the world as sacred. So sacredness is not something reserved for Sunday, and it's not something reserved for organized religion. It's not something that has to take a certain form in a certain way. And I think what's so thrilling about uh, handling this material in a theater is nobody has to be a believer to come into the room. And nobody has to be a card-carrying you know, member or pass some litmus test. Uh, you can just be human, and that's enough. And I think this speaks to very, very real and deep human questions. And uh, without proselytizing, because one of the things we can do as artists uh, is make something that actually ignores the doctrine. The doctrine, of course, is what's used for mass murder, pogroms, and everything else. And that's a part of spirituality, a terrifying part of spirituality. What's so great is Michelangelo can make the Sistine Chapel ceiling, which goes way past doctrine. And in fact, one of the things that artists do over and over again is liberate spirituality into a space that goes beyond words, that goes beyond dogma, and that invites everyone to find their own path through it. And so that's one of the greatest reasons to work in a theater. Did you have a very clear idea when you started work on this particular production of what you wanted this to be on stage? Did you begin with a set of very clear things, or did it emerge as you were working? Well, of course, you know, John announced that it would be a passion oratorio, so I thought that was fine. And then the score showed up, the final score, this two huge volumes like this. And on the title page was the Gospel According to the Other Mary, Act One, and the Gospel According to the Other Mary, Act Two. And I just picked up the phone. I said, John, I think there's a little mistake uh, at the printers. You know, in a passion, it's called part one and part two. And John said, it's an opera, Peter, and hung up. <laughs> so I think John was way ahead of me on this one. Uh, and in this case, uh, it really is um, basically about a type of spirituality that is not just in your head, but is totally in your body. And that's, of course, the crucifixion. It's you put your body where your belief is, deeply. And so to actually invest it in a performance in people's bodies, with dancers, on a stage, with real human beings, not just singing as an oratorio, but really testing these truths in their bodies and having that courage I think is extremely important for the subject matter. And because these are things that are meant to be lived and we only can understand them as we try and live them. So for me, it's very logical actually to put it on a stage. And the, um, and the form the staging took is very surprising, but I think again, uh, comes from about you know, 500 feet to my left here. Uh, if you uh, enjoy all of those, you know, gorgeous frangelicos and so on over there. It has this beautiful sense that we really love from medieval art, which is it's simultaneously very realistic and very abstract. 
And to me, that's the gift of opera, is you have something that's the last word in realism, and at the same time, it's in a, its own completely amazing, magical interior world that has its own strange geometry and perfection. Peter, if it comes from 500 yards to your left, it perhaps also comes, what we're looking at, from about 300 yards to your right, to Sumerian in the Fields and the work they do with the homeless. And uh, I mean, this is a world with cardboard boxes that have to become perforce people's homes. It's a world where these people who are dispossessed have to be, as it were, kept behind barbed wire, behind fences, watched with lights. Um, there is a, a, an extraordinary sense of the shockingly contemporary as the curtain, or as, you, as you begin to look at this production, it seems to me. Well, I mean, if you can do the crucifixion story with no shock, something is wrong. I think the story is meant to be confronting, of course. And, and I think uh, I will just mention one thing that you will see in act two. Dorothy Day, her last arrest was at the age of 77. And she was arrested in California. She came out to march with Cesar Chavez and the farm workers. And these migrant laborers are still the poorest people in the United States. Uh, they are hideously exploited. They have. 70% of the world's strawberries come from Central California. Almonds, 70% of the world's almonds come from sub Central California, are picked by these people. You probably ate a strawberry today picked by them. And meanwhile, they're living in these nightmare shanty towns and working under pesticides and you know, shortened lifespans, miscarriages. And if anyone complains, they, immigration is called and they're deported. And it's a system of contemporary slavery that is just appalling. Uh, Dorothy Day was part of Cesar Chavez's march, which is about these people claiming their full personhood. They march, the great march was to Delano. They marched 200 miles to the state capital of California with an image, giant image of the Virgin of Guadalupe on a banner at the head of the march, which is what we will stage. You see dancers as the Virgin of Guadalupe, the, the Mexican Virgin with all of the stars and planets radiating out from her uh, in all of these colors. Uh, this, um, they marched with the Virgin, and they had a station wagon that trailed the, 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 the march, and they said mass five times a day uh, during the march. And the march that Dorothy Day participated in, there was a mass arrest of the women. They were all carted off to this prison. They, in the manner of Martin Luther King's Birmingham jail experience, they filled the prisons to capacity. And the women, the Mexican women, went through prayer vigils all through the night. And the entire prison was filled with singing of prayers. So that's what we do for the arrest of Jesus and the arrest of the people who are with Jesus. It's the arrest of those women. And the prayer is one of the most moving things because of course that movement in our lifetime, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, of how you respond to violence. The prayer is actually a poem by the great Nicaraguan poet Ruben Dario. And it's saying, praying not to be filled with anger at the people who are clubbing them on the head with batons. The women's blood is pouring down their faces and they're kneeling praying not to be angry and saying, please do not let me give in to rages and lusts. 
and let me find a way to love the people who are doing this to me. I'm waiting to hear from you. Rise up and walk. Which was their image of how to leave that prison. So that prayer, of course, is in Spanish because John Adams and I live in California where Spanish and English are equal parts of our lives and parts of our society. And in fact, in Los Angeles, where I live, it's a Spanish-speaking majority. And the, um, the multiple nature of the whole piece comes from this world of all of these complex contradictions all moving into each other at the same time. And of course, I think that's why religion was invented, is how we deal with our own contradictions and other people's contradictions and the deep contradictions of the world. We have to reach to something still deeper. Peter, last quick question. And as with so many of your productions, dance is absolutely integral and central. There is one astonishing dancer in response, <laughs> um, a young man called Banks. Just tell us a bit about him. I will, I will. That's Banks in the air right there. Uh, uh, we needed an angel and we needed someone who could take flight. As you see, Banks can do that. Uh, this is a new form of street dance from Brooklyn of young African-American, primarily men, but now women, uh, the oldest old masters who invented this new dance language are now 32 and 33. And there are two generations behind them. Banks is from the middle generation. He's also a crumper. And it's dance that is extreme emotion. So they're reaching quite deep in emotional roots. But it's also understanding that as a young as an African-American, young African-American man, you are 21 times more likely to be shot by an officer than a white person of your same age. And it means that your, your life is at risk every single time you set foot on the street. And this form of dance is called flex because it's in order to survive, you have to be flexible, you have to be malleable, you have to be miraculously reconfigure and reconstitute yourself to be alive in all kinds of conditions. And so what they're doing is amazing things that you know from watching a video on your cell phone and going slow and back, uh, slow or fast, back and forth through it, stopping, pausing, opening it up, uh, shutting it down. It's all, it's how you manipulate an image or how major Hollywood movies have these special effects, these young people are creating a special effect with no money, just their own body. They unlock their shoulders, they can move their arms in ways that you did not think were humanly possible. And the shock is the incredible articulation, which is so elaborate. And of course, John Adams' music has, as as has been stated, more layers rhythmically moving than you can ever keep track of. Banks keeps track of all of them in one joint or another of his body. And what you can't believe are these shocking dislocations where his neck muscles are doing one rhythm, his wrists another, his elbows another, his knees another, and his ankles another, and his waist I can't even describe. And all of it is towards this transcendence of people whose lives are dead ends. It's been organized, and they need to imagine, and then not just imagine, actually live 
and embody a future that they have not been offered and they have to create themselves. And where did you first see him? I'm doing a project with 20 dancers like him that will go on in the Park Avenue Armory in March. And I started working with these dancers and was so stunned. And I said, I'm sorry, they need to be in the gospel according to the other Mary at the English National Opera. Finally, we were able to get a passport for one of them. That's Banks. But there are more like him. I mean, it's, an, it's a movement now. And check it out on YouTube. Uh, they are posting things. They have battles and regular challenges. And it's all out there on YouTube. It's pretty amazing. But, of course, when you see it live, you can't believe it. And ladies and gentlemen, you had better believe that. Yeah, no, say, we needed the evening. presence of miracles, and so they're there. <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we've reached, I'm afraid, the end of our allotted time. Can I say some thank yous to Mary Hepkin and Sarah Prigg and to Peter Sellers, all of you, for being here tonight. <laughs>